Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Hear these words now from the book that we love. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place in which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We're thankful for your scriptures. Um, And Lord, when we look at a passage like this out of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it's a strange one. Uh, There's some strange cultural things and some craziness going on. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through it this morning. Uh, Would you meet with us, Holy Spirit? Would you fill my words as I speak in these next few minutes? Would you fill each of us uh, and do your work of illumination to bring these scriptures to bear on our minds and on our hearts? Speak powerfully, work powerfully this morning. Cause us to fall deeper in love with you 
uh, and with your son, Jesus Christ, with the gospel. And we pray and ask all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. You've heard it said, if at first you don't succeed, try again. It's a motto that I would bet most of us, if not all of us in this room, would say is good advice. But I also imagine that most of us probably have our limits on how many times we would be willing to try again. And so I ask you, how long would you be willing to attempt something, to try something before giving up? My wife recently checked out a Where's Waldo book from the public library, and that book over the last week and a half or so has revealed that the answer for my four-year-old daughter is about 15 to 20 seconds per page. She just, she doesn't see it on the first glance. Next page. She's no interest in continuing to look. She gives up pretty fast. Tom Toro is a cartoonist who has published over 200 cartoons in the New Yorker since 2010. However, his career as a cartoonist didn't start out so well. He was valedictorian of his high school class. He went to Yale. He applied to NYU and got in and was studying film. But after two years, Tom realized that he was in the wrong field. He found himself up to his neck in debt felt directionless, he felt lost in a huge city like New York. And so he did what second-year college students do. He dropped out, and he moved back into his parents' house in California. One day, he was at a garage sale, and he stumbled across a box of New Yorker cartoons that had been clipped out and someone had saved. And it spurred in him an an old passion of his to draw and to doodle, and he began to draw again, and as he began to draw his own cartoons, he decided to submit some of his originals to the New Yorker. Shortly after he sent this first batch, he received a reply in the mail. Just two sentences were on it, but it was his first rejection note from the New Yorker. And over the next two years, Tom continued to draw. He continued to submit most weeks a full batch of multiple cartoons, He even, after about a year and a half, decided to travel across the country to introduce himself to Bob Mankoff, who was the cartoon editor at The New Yorker. He continued to work on his cartoons, his drawing, his captions. He eventually found his style. And with a pile of rejection letters, he finally received the email that he had been waiting for, went into his mom's office, got on her computer, opened up the email, And the subject line said, cartoon sold. Here's the amazing part. It was the 610th one that he submitted that finally was accepted. 610 times Tom Toro tried to get that first cartoon published. We all love a good story of perseverance, don't we? It's a great story. We all love to see someone overcome obstacles in some way, excuse me, to be rewarded for their tenacity, for their relentless drive to never give up. And I think the reason that we love this is because we are made in the image of our creator God, and he is persistent. He is steadfast. He is tenacious 
and resolute. And in our story this morning, we see God's covenant promise in peril. It's in danger. And it looks for a moment like this promise that God has given to Abraham may not be fulfilled, but God himself steps in. He doesn't give up on his divine plan, but he ensures that it will be accomplished despite the sinfulness of humanity, namely the potential sinfulness of the king of Gerar, Abimelech, and the actual sinfulness of Abram, the father of the faith. And so from here, I want to talk in two parts. First, about the foolishness of Abraham, and second, about the faithfulness of God. The foolishness of Abraham, and then the faithfulness of God. Foolishness. Since God first called Abram in chapter 12, the book of Genesis, if you've been following along in this sermon series we've been doing, or if you haven't, that's okay. I'll catch you up here real quick, give you the context. Now, the book of Genesis has been all about the realization of this covenant promise that God gave in chapter 12, that to and through this man, Abraham, that it was a promise of land, the, the, the promised land, it's called, and a family, a family which would grow eventually into a great nation. In our passage this morning, Genesis 20, it occurs in this section that focuses in the book specifically on God's promise to Abraham of an heir, this biological son who would carry on the promise. And our passage is sandwiched between these two promises of Isaac's birth. Again, we've preached on these in the weeks prior. Chapter 17, where God changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, and he gives the covenant sign of circumcision. And then in the next chapter, chapter 18, where Abraham and Sarah are visited by two angelic beings and the covenant promise is reaffirmed to them. And so our passage is sandwiched between those two promises and then chapter 21, the following chapter that we're looking at next week, the actual birth narrative of Isaac occurs there. So our passage is right in the middle. And so this story here takes place only a few weeks or maybe a couple of months at most after Abraham was promised by God through these angelic messengers that his wife would be pregnant within the next year. Sarah's long-awaited pregnancy of a biological heir through which this covenant promise would be continued is imminent. It could happen any day, any week, any month. And Abraham knows this. It was just promised to them, and yet this story happens, and Abraham nearly throws it all away. But what does he do? What foolishness does Abraham engage in here? And in my opinion, as I studied this passage this past week, Abraham is guilty of at least three transgressions in this passage. And I want to walk through those here. Three transgressions. First, he commits what one commentator called domestic blackmail against his wife. Look back at verse 13. When Abraham is speaking to Abimelech, he's giving his excuses, and he said, When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. We've all heard, hopefully we haven't done, though if you have, 
the season of Lent is a good time to repent of these things. Some version of, well, if you really love me, then you'll do blank. That's what Abraham does here to his wife, which is so manipulative and so evil. He commits domestic blackmail. But second, he then builds on that domestic blackmail, and he uses it to lie to Abimelech. So the second thing he does is he lies. Verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now we do find out in verse 12, maybe you caught this when I was reading the passage, that Sarah is indeed Abraham's sister, though technically his half-sister, not his full sister, being the daughter of his father, uh, with another woman. And we could talk about that stuff, we won't for today, but it's common in the Old Testament for uh, the patriarchs and others to marry close relatives. Again, maybe Jim will talk about that some other time, but we won't talk about that today. It's a whole other thing. But him saying to Abimelech, she is my sister, even if it's maybe technically, partially, mostly true, is just a lie. It's a lie. Why? Because she's his wife. That's the most important part. She is his bride, his best friend, the love of his life. That's the part he intentionally leaves out. Why? To deceive. To deceive this pagan king. He lies to his face. And unfortunately, this is not the first time that he has done this. If you look back in Genesis chapter 12, right after the promise is given, just a handful of verses later, Abraham and Sarah use this little scheme there. They end up going down to, they leave the land of Canaan, they go down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And there, Sarah is taken by Pharaoh after Abraham tells the same half-truth. And note, too, the way the king of Gerar refers to Abraham. I think this is hilarious in verse 16. Maybe you caught this as well. When he's talking to Sarah, he's telling her, he's talking to her and telling her about the reparations that he's paying for this wrongdoing in order to exonerate her, to make her, to show everyone that she's innocent in the eyes of others. And he says that he gave them to your brother. It's just a great jab. What a great jab. Just a little bit of sarcasm that Abimelech has there. And so Abraham commits domestic blackmail. He uses that to lie to Abimelech. But third and finally, and this one in many ways, is the most important way that Abraham sins in this passage, is that Abraham trusts in himself more than he trusts in God. This is the sin that lies deep down below the surface. It's what's taking place under the surface, the the, the bigger part of the iceberg that's below. That's the thing that's deep down, the root out of which these other sins grow. Abraham, who is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans as the father of the faith, he demonstrates here an incredible lack of faith in God. And we see this most pointedly in Abraham's excuses that he gives to Abimelech, trying to justify his line. Look back again, verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And so when Abraham comes to this city, he assumes that there would not be a high code of moral conduct, and he is afraid for his safety. 
And both of those concerns somewhat legitimate. You're a foreigner, you're coming into a new place, it's this new king that you don't really know how all this is going to go down. It's legitimate. But rather than rely on God for his protection, rather than rely on God for his provision, Abraham takes matters into his own hands. He chooses to trust in himself rather than trust in God. He, contempt, he, he attempts to control the situation. He attempts to control the outcomes rather than simply doing what is right and then just leaving the outcomes up to God. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-trust. It's one of the oldest sins in the book. And the scriptures encourage us again and again and again to resist that ancient temptation. I want to share with you two passages, and maybe these would be good for you to think about, meditate on later. Two of my favorite passages in scripture, actually. Psalm 20, 7 to 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And then Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. These are two of my favorite passages in Scripture in many ways. Why? Because I need to hear them, and I know that. They resonate with me on a deep level. And I need to read them and think about them and contemplate them often. See, the temptation for me, I'll confess, to trust my own instincts, to trust in my own intellect and my own abilities rather than to trust God is a strong one. It's a strong urge, a strong desire. But it's a siren song. It's beautiful, it's attractive, it seems right, but it leads to nothing good. It only leads to death. And Abraham's excuses we see in these verses are inadequate, and they are selfish. He throws his wife under the bus, more or less, and they indicate a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. He's giving off some real, what you might call, big loser energy in these passages. And he puts the promise in peril. It's a serious thing, this covenant promise. He puts it in serious jeopardy. And it's foolish. But secondly, the faithfulness of God. God steps into the situation, and in ways that God, only God can do, he sovereignly rights the ship. He pulls it away from the rocks. His plans cannot be stopped. His plans cannot be foiled. And the gracious intervention of God, it begins in a very startling way in verse 3, this nocturnal revelation to the king, to Abimelech. Behold, you are a dead man. That would wake you up in the middle of the night. That would be pretty shocking. God appears to this king of Gerar. He points out his sin. He gives him the opportunity to repent. But we learn in these verses that God has actually already been at work, that behind the scenes, God has already been protecting this divine plan, this covenant promise. He's been actively working to prevent Abimelech from engaging sexually with Sarah. In verse 4, 
the text tells us now Abimelech had not approached her. But in verse 6, we learn, and it makes clear, that this was actually God's doing. Look at verse 6. God says, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did, I did not let you touch her. And this phrase used here in verse 4, approached her, or your translation might say gone near, or there's lots of other ways to translate it, is a euphemism. It's used in other places of the Old Testament to describe illicit sexual practice. And so we see that Abimelech's conduct is upright. His behavior is free from guilt. Why? Because God intervened. It was God's common grace to restrain evil that kept Abimelech and his people from calamity, that kept them from utter destruction. It was not because Abimelech had some commitment to piety or some commitment to chastity. It was God. God intervened. And so one of the ways in which we see the faithfulness of God in this passage is through his tenacity. It's through his perseverance to ensure that the covenant promise is fulfilled. He will do anything he needs to do to make this happen. And much like the cartoonist Tom Toro, who I talked about at the very beginning, God simply doesn't give up. He's relentless. And he cannot help himself. This is actually who God is. It's just a part of his character. It's a part of his very nature. Jim referenced uh, during announcements a minute ago the Theology 101 that's coming up starting next week. Here's a tease a little bit for you. This is going to get a little thick for a second. Systematic theologians have long articulated that God is immutable and trustworthy. Let me explain those two things really quickly, and then next week, Scott can, can, can answer all your questions. God is, I love giving other people work to do. I'm an executive pastor. That's my job, right? So Jim's going to explain about all the cousin stuff. Scott's going to explain about this stuff. It's part of the job description. You know. Got to do it. Delegation. That wasn't in the notes. Uh, let me get back. Let me explain these two things. God is immutable, which means that he cannot deteriorate or improve, but he always remains the same. In other words, God is unchangeable. And this is all over the scriptures. Psalm 102, 26 to 27, the psalmist sings, The heaven and earth will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. And in James 1.17, the apostle James proclaims, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shadow due to change. In discussing this concept of immutability, the theologian Louis Burkhoff, he writes, that God is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfections and in, it, and in his purposes and promises. So God is immutable. He can't change. But God is also trustworthy, which means that he is the source of truth and that his revelation, all that he says, is reliable. Numbers twenty three nineteen, Balaam says to Balak, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? 
And during his earthly ministry, Jesus refers to the Father, his heavenly Father, John 17, 3, as the only true God. And the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 18, says that it is impossible for God to lie. In discussing trustworthiness, another theologian, Herman Bovink, explains that God will always stand by his words and promises, and he will prove them true. Now, I know that was a lot, but here's the point. Because God is both immutable and because God is trustworthy, his promises must come to pass. They must happen exactly the way that he says they will. It cannot be otherwise. And because the promises of God we find in Scripture are reliable and sure, one of the things I want to encourage you this morning is to cling to those promises, to cling to those things in time of need. And I don't know what you need to hear this morning. I don't know exactly what's going on in the life of every one of you, though I do know of some of you. And in this room, we have all kinds of different things that is going on, whether that's relational conflict, relational difficulty, whether that's job difficulty, whether that is uh, mental health, physical health, so many things, financial insecurity, so many things going on in this room. I don't know what you need specifically, but what I would encourage you is to find a passage in Scripture where God is promising and cling to that with all that you have. One that I was meditating on for myself this past week was Romans 8.28, where Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And for me, I've been holding on to that. I've been clinging to that. And what a comfort it is to remember that God's sovereign and providential care is there for his people, that God will orchestrate the events and details of our lives to bring about our ultimate beneficial good. And that's just one example. There's so many promises of God in Scripture, and all of them he will bring to pass. His word does not return void. It does not return empty. He will accomplish and do all that he says he will accomplish and do. And so again, I encourage you, hold tightly to that. Hold tightly to those things. Back to Genesis 20. God graciously intervenes to protect his covenant promise, to provide this biological heir to Abraham and Sarah, but that's not all. He also graciously blesses Abraham and blesses Abraham's family despite his foolishness and despite his sinful behavior. Did you catch that? That there's a blessing that happens here? Look back at verses 14 and 16 right near the end. Abimelech gives Abraham sheep and oxen, male and female servants. He gives them the choice of land, and he gives them an extravagant amount of money. And regarding this, one commentator that I read this week noted that Abraham emerges from this narrative with his power and authority not only intact but actually enhanced. And that's crazy because what he did was ridiculous and foolish and dumb. But it's important to see in this text and to understand that God isn't blessing Abraham through this king because of Abraham's virtue. He's not blessing Abraham because of his faith. He's a mess in this story. But instead, God blesses this undeserving, faithless, selfish, 
liar simply because God is gracious and he chose to. He chose to show Abraham abundant, extravagant, and incredible grace. Seminary president and author Cornelius Plantinga, he's at Calvin Seminary, or was at Calvin Seminary, he wrote this. Human sin is stubborn, but it's not as stubborn as the grace of God. So the other way that we see the faithfulness of God in this passage is through his steadfast and relentless love for Abraham. It's often said by people who are not followers of Jesus. You might hear this when you're having conversations with people, see it online or whatever, that they feel that they cannot turn to Christ because their sin is too great. And they think it's unforgivable. They've simply done too much evil. And if that's you in the room here this morning, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and maybe your mind goes along those lines, we're glad that you're here. We'll welcome you. But I want you to hear this. This is good for those of us that are Christians as well. That you are not beyond the reach of God's steadfast love. You are not too broken to receive his never stopping, never giving up grace. Your weakness, your woundedness, your wickedness, it is not too big for God to redeem. And I love this passage, the way the Apostle Paul makes this point clear in Romans 5, chapter, or Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Some translations say superabounded, which I think sounds great. Where sin is great, his grace is greater. That's just a fact. That's who God is. British theologian and Oxford professor C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. So that brings us to the final thing that I want to point out here from this passage, and this is where we'll wrap up. Verse 7. When God is speaking to Abimelech, Abraham is identified as a prophet, which means that he is a man who spoke as an intermediary between God and between humanity, that Abraham, as a prophet, had the ability and the privilege to offer prayers, to offer intercessory prayers on behalf of others, which he does at the very end of this story. The last couple of verses here in our passage reference that, verses 17 and 18. It says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. As a quick side note, possibly the greatest irony in this passage, and there are others that I didn't mention this morning, but possibly the greatest one is found here. Abraham, this man who is 99 years old, he has longed for a biological son and an heir his whole life. And his wife at this point is not yet pregnant, but he has to pray for the fertility of a pagan nation. He prays for, a, for barren women to become pregnant while his wife remains barren. 
I can only imagine how humbling that must have been, how difficult that must have been for him, yet also how rewarding in some ways that God was willing to use him despite his foolishness. And this word prophet, this is the first time that you find this word in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Abraham was the first prophet, but he was flawed, as we've discussed. And all the prophets throughout the Old Testament were also flawed. They were also tainted by sin. There's Moses, there's Elijah, many more, so on. But there was one prophet who lived a perfect life. And he lived a perfect life in order to see the realization of God's covenant promise given to Abraham and carried forward come true. And this prophet now intercedes on our behalf constantly before the throne of his father. It's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And through his death and his resurrection, he secured for us inclusion into God's people. He secured for us adoption into the very family of God. Through Abraham, the imperfect prophet, God initiates the promise, but through Jesus, the prophet par excellence, God accomplishes and applies the promise to us to the praise of his glorious grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.